Hey, K2H folks. All right. You know, I always say I'm not going to be political and this is a time to <laughs> disclaim myself from that. Um, this is a very interesting time and a very divisive time in addressing what this country means and where you stand on a lot of um, issues. And so I'm just gonna put it out there that today we're gonna to be discussing the presence, the increasing presence of Proud Boys in Hawaii, what that means for us here in the state and what that means in terms of, I guess, um, the movements and, and how it connects to what national what what nationalism means and breaking down i guess our beliefs and value systems that might reflect our historical context um so i am going to introduce my two guests today and my first one she, i i met her i guess when i first started at uh in the women's studies department so um hannah is a graduate student at uh manoa who just defended her dis dissertation congrats hannah Whew. Um, and she examines the title IX policy using an intersectional lens and while her focus is on issues relating to gender and topics relating to race and ethnicity and white supremacy it's um sorry White supremacy is actually peppered throughout her work, including perceptions of the Proud Boys amongst the campus communities. And that's what we're addressing now. So welcome, Hannah, um, to this conversation. And we also have born and raised in Honolulu, Hawaii, local boy Adrian Tam, who is a proud graduate of Kalani High School and Penn State University. So upon graduation, Tam worked for his family's small business as a realtor working with first-time homebuyers. And in 2016, he started working at the Hawaii State Legislature under Speaker Emeritus Calvin Say before working for Senator Stanley Chang. And during his career, Tam sat on the Medical Cannabis Working Group as a designated member working on many legislative bills revolving housing and youth and being a part of several organizations such as the Waikiki Lions Club and the Taiwanese American Professionals. And he's also running for State House District 2, for your information. So on that note, we are going to bring back, so we're going to let's kick off this conversation with um, what Proud Boys means, first of all. I think some people don't know. It's actually a relatively new um, term, especially in Hawaii. Maybe not. I mean, it's been around. So Hano, can you enlighten us uh, on, on what the term stands for and what they represent and what that means to you. Sure, so, um, <clears throat> well, I guess the term the Proud Boys comes from, and I don't know if either of you know this, a um, the Disney movie Aladdin, there was a song that was cut from that movie called Proud of Your Boy. And that song is actually how the Proud Boys got their name from this Disney movie. Wow. Yeah, see, I can tell you didn't know that. Um, but as far as um, who the group is, you mentioned historical context and nationalism. And I'm really glad you sort of uh, grounded our talk in that because we know that these white supremacist groups don't just pop out of nowhere, right? Like there's this complicated history, not only with race in the United States, but also with racism in the United States and what racism looks like. If we were to jump back to the early 90s, things that are PC or were PC in the 90s that maybe you could say on like a TV show, making fun of a, you know, Asian American, let's say, 
is not PC anymore. And so we see that evolution. So these Nothing's white supremacists- Nothing's PC anymore, Hannah. Nothing's what? PC. <laughs> yeah, cancel culture, yeah. So, and I, I, yeah, I've been thinking about that too. Um, but there are ways that racism manifests in uh, contemporary society that is still PC. So there's a book I love about college communities called Paying for the Party. And the upper middle class women in this book, they will say things like, I don't want to room with that girl anymore. We don't have anything in common. We don't have the same interests. And what they're really saying is, I don't want to be in the same room as her. I don't want her to be my roommate in the dorms because she's Jewish, because she's gay. And so there is this way to mask your racism, your homophobia, what have you in our contemporary society that's considered PC. And these very privileged upper middle class people can do that while also looking down at their poor white counterparts who may actually say something racist like, I don't wanna room with this black woman or anti-Semitic, I don't wanna room with this Jewish person. So it's an interesting way that class interacts with race and racism and how that looks different depending on your class background. Um, but going back to the historical context of the Proud Boys, you know, when we think of white supremacy groups in our country, we think of the Ku Klux Klan, right? Like, like, that's what comes to mind. And then we saw that a lot of poor white people didn't resonate with the Ku Klux Klan because these were very privileged individuals. You know, they were politicians, they were lawyers, they were doctors. And so we saw neo-Nazis crop up starting as early as the 70s. Um, and that was an international movement. You know, we had neo-Nazis in Europe as well, in England. And then eventually this image of a skinhead neo-Nazi, you know, the shaved head, wife beater, kind of what you see in American history X, um, that became unpopular and out of fashion even for poor whites. And so you still have neo-Nazis that exist. It's not like they went away. You still have the Ku Klux Klan, they didn't go away. But now you have a new sort of morphine of white supremacy in you know, the 2000s where, how are we gonna appeal to college students? You know, how are we gonna appeal to young people, neo-Nazis, it's, it's not working anymore. And that's where we see the Proud Boys. And they don't look like a neo-Nazi, you know, they often look a little militant. Um, they often uh, adhere to sort of a hipster aesthetic uh, and they don't look like a neo-Nazi or someone who's part of KKK. So that's sort of the historical context of how this group came to be. Um, and I actually write about their group identity in some of the work I do, but um, I'll, I've talked a lot, so I'll go ahead and mute myself. <laughs> no, don't mute yourself. Come interject whenever you want. Um, but Adrian, yeah, this is, you know, being, are you, are you Chinese, right? I'm assuming. Uh, mixed, Chinese. Mixed. Yeah. Okay. So um, as a, you know, I hate that word minority because it's like, it's just always trying to put us on the outside of everything. And this is the problem with, you know, America is, is the labeling of everything. But, and even though being Asian, Asian American in Hawaii is not a big deal in the political scene, or even in anywhere really in media, you know, it's still always represented as a marginal character, right? And I don't know how your local upbringing and your influences from your um, parents and grandparents, how does that influence and shape you for, for, for a start um, to get to where you are in your beliefs and where you wanna go with um, your kind of policy making ideas? Thank you for that question. And, um, you know, my upbringing is basically who I am. 
I grew up here, I was born and raised. And, you know, being from here, you kind of think that this is the normal, this is how everything operates until you visit the mainland where I went to school, I went to Pennsylvania State. And it's just different. And the biggest difference I tell people is that when I walk into someone's house in Hawaii, I take off my slippers. When I walk into someone's house in like Erie, Pennsylvania or something, they ask me why am I taking off my shoes and to keep them on. You know, that that culture difference is what makes us so unique. And um, I think to represent Hawaii, to kind of be a leader in Hawaii, to uh, work with people in Hawaii, you have to pretty much know the culture. And you don't have to be born and raised here to know, know the culture. You just all have to just understand why it's there and be respectful to it. Well, you know, respectful, yes. I mean, I in an ideal world, we are all apparently respecting everybody's opinions on things. Um, I wanted to draw, if I may, um, there is also someone who's running for a representative um, who is uh, apparently a proud boy, right? Um, that is Nicholas Ox. And um, I haven't had him on the show yet, but perhaps there'll be a chance to. Um, but there is an article on recently on how he considers himself a nationalist and he differentiated that from being a white nationalist. And I just wanted to know what you both thought of that because yeah, in an ideal world, we all are nationalists because we want to do things that are going to better our country, right? Mm -hmm. With him not using that word white, I mean, is that just like Hannah, you say masking? I think that's like another key word, like how we're, how we're packaging <laughs> or what are we kind of blanketing? Yeah, I guess, I mean, the question is, you know, with, with, like, with someone like that running, um, does that what does that pose to you? What does that mean to you um, on the political scene? Because that's something I think it's really quite new here because um, honestly, the Proud Boys have been labeled as, according to the Southern Poverty Law, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Hannah, as a, a hate group. And he is one of the, is he the running, he's the founder of the Proud Boys in Hawaii, is that right? Yes, he founded the Proud okay. Boys in Hawaii yeah. from what I learned. Okay, so I'm just bringing all these things together because there are some alarming elements to questioning what nationalism means today and um, coming from cultural diversity and, and non-binary identity um, and all these different elements that make us culturally rich here. What is that gonna do to our future or how do we address that? So nationalism is interesting. Uh, there's a professor of sociology um, here at UH Manoa who um, I don't actually don't always agree with her ideologically, but she's very brilliant. Her name is Nandita Sharma and she writes about nationalism. And one of my most favorite things that she's ever spoken to or taught me is how um, nationalism has become this okay thing like it's okay to be a nationalist right but when you call a nationalist a racist that's not okay and so people who are actually racist who would say something racist maybe they're a member of a white supremacy group like the proud boys like the kkk um they'll get really upset if you say that they're a racist but if you say they're a nationalist then they're okay and then you start to break down like what what are these nationalist things that they're doing right 
oh, it's all racist. So it's like they're, they become synonymous almost, but uh, racist has been coded as bad, even by racist, and nationalist has been coded as good, hmm. even by some liberals. So even the terms are so divisive and it's so black and white, you know, it's... <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, nationalism is, <clears throat> in my opinion, the kind of nationalist that the other candidate is bringing to this race is new to Hawaii. Um, he often accuses me of bringing mainland style leftism when he's bringing, he's coming from Indiana and bringing in things that um, never been a big topic here, such as nationalism, such as Antifa um, and the Proud Boys. And now we are at a point where we are wondering how do we react to this? How do we work with this? Um, the biggest um, question came to us when was when um, a video surfaced online of him um, urinating over a Kilauea fissure. And we kind of had a meeting in the morning after we were called by KITV about whether or not we we're going to comment and talk about this and condemn this. And we ultimately came to the decision that we were going to condemn it. But just the fact that we had to have that conversation about, you know, what we're going to do with this just shows how new this is to Hawaii and how it doesn't represent our values. I think um, what Adrian just spoke to demonstrates how the Proud Boys have infiltrated politics in Hawaii. Um, and so there's this social institution that we know called politics. And I think, so obviously I'm, I'm from the mainland, I'm not local, but I think there's this idea that politi local politics in Hawaii are somehow different than the mainland. And we don't have that, the Proud Boys problem, but we're seeing that type of behavior and language and rhetoric infiltrating that social institution. And similarly at UH Manoa, so higher education in the state, um, we're starting to see the Proud Boys infiltrate that as well. So again, education, another social institution. Um, and we, we tend to think, well, we don't have those problems on, on our school. Um, that's a mainland thing. And I write about that in my dissertation, but I wanna uh, bring out a quote from Nick Ox. Um, who is the founder of the Proud Boys here in Hawaii. Anna, can we hold on to that? Yeah. I want to take a quick break. We'll come back and people can come back and regroup and we'll start with your quote. How about that? Okay, we'll be back. Welcome back. You're listening to K2H. I'm Crystal and I am talking to Adrian Tam and Hannah Liebrich here on the issue of um, what we call the Proud Boys and their uh, increasing presence in Hawaii and what that means. Uh, for our diversity here. And uh, we were just uh, leaving off, Hannah, you had meant that you were going to quote um, <coughs> Nicholas Ox on something, go ahead. Yeah, so when I was collecting data for my dissertation, people were talking about the Proud Boys, like they were concerned about the Proud Boys having a presence at UH Manoa. And I was like, well, you know, maybe they're just hearing it on a national scale, right? Like maybe they're just too into their little um, Instagram, Twitter world and they, you know, maybe it's not happening here. And then I came across a public interview Nick Ox gave where he said, and I quote, 
referring to the Proud Boys, were like a men's club the way the Shriners and the Foresters used to be before a bunch of lesbians came along and ruined it with their Title IX affirmative action bullshit. And so besides feeling personally attacked as one of those crazy lesbians, um, it also shows that they, the, the uh, locally and nationally, they are intentionally placing themselves within the context of the college campus. If you look at who they recruit, they say they're, re- they're recruiting people from the suburbs. Well, people from the suburbs are the people more likely to go to college, right? So they're, they're recruiting young people who are likely to go to college, um, which is different than neo-Nazis who tended to recruit white, poor whites. Hmm. Um, and then they want a presence on campus, you know, oh, we're just a bunch of guys drinking beer, talking about chicks, you know, we're, we're harmless. We're not the people who uh, provide security for Trump rallies, except they are. They are providing security for Trump rallies and they do um, some crazy things. So their founder, their national founder is Gavin McGinnis, who founded Vice Media. And he was actually, he sold Vice because he was pushed out because his his ideas were becoming increasingly and alarmingly very right-winged and violent. And because he has all this money, the Proud Boys want to sue. They want to make people angry. They want people on college campuses to get in their face when they're tabling and handing out flyers that promote white supremacy so that they can sue. And they can sue for freedom of speech. And then the university will have to pay a lot of money because they have Gavin McGinnis and all these other people, wealthy white right-wing folks, donating to their court fees, getting them you know, top-notch lawyers, and they will win every time. And we actually do have a history of, UH Manoa admin, or UH system has a history of settling out of court for freedom of speech violations, not with the Proud Boys yet, but with the religious organization at UH Tilo circa 2014. So they're very fearful of the Proud Boys uh, because they don't want to get sued for a freedom of speech here. Yeah, and, and you're mentioning power and it always comes with money and you know whoever's supporting that. Um, I wanted to backtrack a little bit when you were mentioning how you said that they were kind of like the, the, the security people behind Trump and that got me thinking about that. Um, during the uh, the speech that Trump had made about saying for the Proud Boys to stand back or stand by and stand back. What did that really imply? Because that's something that was quoted extensively. And um, what does that mean to both of you really when, when something like that is heard by the president? <laughs> for me, um, I was still in the area where I was still figuring out who the Proud Boys was but I've kind of understood who they were around that point. And when I heard that, I was kind of horrified that not only is this president not condemning white supremacy or white nationalism, he is just asking them to go to arms for him pretty much. And it's just shocking. You know, I majored in history um, and there's this quote that we all, that all of us historians kind of share, which is those who don't learn history are doomed to repeat it. And I can tell you that every history major professor that watched that moment kind of felt the same way I felt that time, which was just in complete shock and horror. 
Hannah, did you want to say something about that first? I think we have to think about the context, right? Because he, Trump and Pence have said that they're not willing to go, they're not, they'll, they're not afraid to use force um, in the exchange of power. And we know that, you know, Trump has supported violent acts. So I think we can't just hear him say that out of context. We have to think about what else is happening. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it goes back to history too, because everything is about context, right? If we don't look backwards, how are we gonna move forward? In fact, I was just watching this really um, enlightening um, animated musical video of, of, of history um, funded and supported by the World Channel. Um, I think it's on PBS, World Channel, um, catering to the education group, but basically, you know, using a form of entertainment, if you will, because the younger generation don't seem to have that patience to read, um, but addressing whiteness by questioning what whiteness means, right? I mean, the topic, the title is really quite provocative. It's like, uh, gosh, what is it? Um, what is white people's history or something like that? And, um, how do you feel about that? You know, in, ever since this Black Lives Matters movement uh, and George Floyd and the whole eruption of this conversation, and you know, we know nothing's PC anymore, as you had mentioned, um, Hannah, in the beginning. But the idea of oversensitizing things—is that a thing? Like, is that something that? Um, are, did you ever question, like, are we going too far with this racial narrative, or is it something that needs to get too far in order to bring back and and the reasons why these kind of concepts of whiteness are emerging now in ways that we're not quite comfortable with? Well, I'm the only white person on the call, and so I'll say that um, I want to think of myself as woke, right? Like, you know, progressive whites want to see themselves that way. And I could spend another hour with you talking about all the times I've put my foot in my mouth and said something or done something that was problematic. And I didn't realize it until someone pointed it out to me. So I think, you know, it's important to have these conversations. And I don't know that there's a way to go too far in a PC way. I think you know, we have to think about how, about people's feelings and thoughts and experiences in, in their, their lives. And, you know, the Black community is not homogenous, right? So something that could offend one Black person may not offend another Black person. Um, and so we have to understand those nuances. Um, I have actually experienced anti-Semitism in my life. Uh, people not, you know, my neighbor's not playing with me because my dad was Jewish, not being able to participate in some of the church proceedings at the church my mom insisted we go to um, because my dad was Jewish. My my uncle saying, you know, to my sister before I was born, go get some change, little Jew girl, you know, things like that that were overtly anti-Semitic and yet you know, I'm not ever going to say, well, I know what it's like to be black in America because it's just not the same thing, right? right? right. Um, it's just not. Yeah. And so there's marginalization, there's there's anti-Semitism, there's racism, there's whatever, but. Yeah, the, the whole allyship thing's a very tricky, tricky thing. Um, Adrian, have you experienced any kind of form of uh, harassment or, or just, you know, being Asian in, in the East Coast, I don't know, in school? 
Um, yes, I definitely have. Um, I used to shop at this place called Wegmans in Pennsylvania. And um, one time when I was checking out, I think, well, not I think, I remember the um, grocer said something very racist towards me um, regarding um, the, who I am and what I bought because I bought some like just Asian stuff from the Asian ingredients aisle. <laughs> and uh, I think she dropped, I remember her dropped the, um, the racial slur um, gook. And, you know, immediately I didn't know what to do because I never experienced that before. I kind of just left. Um, needless to say, I, I took the, the um, lo a longer bus route to a farther Wegmans after that incident. But for me, that was the first time I've experienced racism. And um, it was eye-opening. But I will say that there is racism in Hawaii as well. We may not feel it as people in the, you know, in the majority race here because we're Asian, but yeah. in Hawaii, you can definitely see some of the racism targeted towards, you know, Native Hawaiians, Micronesians, and Filipino people. Absolutely. So it's just perspective and all different yeah yeah i want to hold on to those thoughts and take another break but I, I think everybody may have had a story of 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 feeling um whether it was a, a racial or a you know a gendered kind of a harassment or or biased kind of um insult from someone it's it's deep rooted in this country and i think a lot of times we don't really we just kind of suppress it because we don't want to think it's you know affecting our lives to that extent so now's the time to talk about it so let's take a quick break i guess everybody can think about their um i guess relationship with um this country and where we stand in it um and we'll come back and we're talking again, if you're just listening now to uh, Hannah and Adrian on, well, obviously we're talking really about racism right now. So <laughs> don't go away. Welcome back. You're listening to KTUH. I'm Crystal. Uh, you're listening to Quack Talk. My show addressing today is the kind of controversial, honestly, controversial topic about the divisiveness of this country and the Proud Boys' presence in Hawaii and what your stance and your beliefs are and how they're shaped, you know? Why Why is this, why are we such a uh, racialized country? Well, we have to think back on our history. So Adrian, you were running for the State House District 22. You were, you studied history um, at Penn State, is that right? Um, and and Hannah, you have just done a dissertation on on the kind of not just Proud Boys, but the whole kind of uh, exploration on white supremacy and race and ethnicity and all that's in the intersections of all those very sensitive issues. So, how do we make sense of where we're going in the country right now? I mean, do you think that, um, and, and why? Why are these new emergence of these ex extreme groups um, coming out so visible now, today? Is it, you know, I'm just gonna backtrack a little bit, you know, thinking about my connection to perhaps racism with the Chinese community, uh, historically with the Chinese Exclusion Act, is that, you know, that the government clamped down because before it was, okay, we can use them, they're cheap labor, they're great for the country, but until the moment where they feel threatened by them, that they create 
policies to control that, right? So um, if we're talking about politics here, if we're talking about the emergence of these extreme groups and what they're trying to do um, and why, why the, the diversity in this country is feels threatened, I just, maybe you can both share your thoughts on, on how to make sense of this world we live in right now. Well, I would be remiss um, if I didn't say, um, if my friend Natalie Rita ends up watching this, that the Chinese Exclusion Act was the first time the United States ever put any sort of um, races or like ban on an ethnicity or race. So um, I actually, I didn't know that I, until like, I didn't realize that was the first one until I knew her and her research. Um, and then I'll say, we see a swing in the pendulum anytime anything progressive happens. So we saw after slavery and reconstruction that there was a huge um, right-wing swing and all the blacks who had been elected into public office were taken out. We see all these, uh, you know, the Jim Crow, the voter voting exclusions and all of that. Um, and then we have the civil rights movement and we have this swing into a more progressive era. Uh, but then we backtrack, right? And so we get like, you know, Reagan and the Bushes um, and we start to see the war on drugs. And we now know that the war on drugs was targeted in minority communities, especially black and Latino communities. Um, and then we got Obama and we thought things were gonna get better. And that's a whole other argument uh, if you look at his track record while in office, but he definitely was a symbol for progress. And then we got Trump <laughs> and we got boys and so we see this pendulum swinging and if you study social movements which i have you start to see where these pendulum swings happen um the last thing i'll say is that uh for now <laughs> um is that when we saw trump say what he did during the first presidential debate of 2020 the proud boys became more mainstream it's a really important thing that happened um, one of my friends from the mainland, she lives in Detroit. Um, her, she's the coolest parents. I, I know she's going to listen. So hi, Jordy. Um, and she um, explained what to her parents, you know, old school, hardcore dads, right? And she's like trying to explain to her dad. And then she's like, wait, do I really know everything about the Proud Boys? So we've been talking about like, well, what is starting to see the group is, and I think it's important that we have these kind of conversations that you're facilitating so that people can actually learn the origin of this organization and what they believe in and what their hazing process is, um, you know, all that good stuff. Yeah, I couldn't agree more um, with what Hannah just said. Um, you know, change is scary. So when something big changes in this country and moves forward with progress, it activates a certain group in this country that wants to bring it back to the good old days. Um, I think Ruth Bader Ginsburg also described this country as the symbol of this country as a pendulum. You know, when it swings too far to the right, ultimately it'll go back to the center. And when it swings too far to the left, it'll ultimately go back to the center. And I think that as time progresses, especially with um people like us meaning you know um millennials um the woke movement um people that are more aware i think that people would be more accepting to change and the change that has been made in the past you know it will withstand any 
um, fringe politician or fringe movement. But Adrian, you know, because you're running for office, right? And I mean, I don't know how much that affects your life, your work, but, you know, with the presence of Proud Boys we're talking about, like, how does that create a threat directly to a lot of the kind of marginal communities that you're trying to support, like non-binary communities or, um, you know, you can, you can articulate them yourselves, but I'm just wondering, like, what does this mean for you? For me, um, when I got into this race, I wanted to run on the economy. I wanted to run on um, trying to make it easier for people in Hawaii to live here. And when the Proud Boys came in, the conversation kind of shifted to um, becoming, to talk about, you know, Black Lives Matter and Tifa and the Proud Boys itself. And quite frankly, I'm okay with that. You know, we should have a conversation about that. But at the same time, in my view, I am gonna stick on my message, which is why I got into this race in the first place. And ultimately the Proud Boys things, it will die off faster and quicker. I've always said that, you know, by engaging with fringe candidates, you further their agenda. And that's why I've been making an effort to really stick on message. Even when people ask me about it in my district, about what I think of the other candidate, I don't try to address it. I kind of shrug it off. I say, I acknowledge that they're there and they're talking about these things. And these things, you know, I disagree with because I believe that they don't represent our values. But here's what my campaign is talking about. I'm talking about trying to make it easier for you to go to the grocery store and buy a carton of milk. Um, I want to make sure that you pay lower rent and that the market's not screwed outside of trying to screw you over. So that's kind of my approach to this whole situation, at least. What if the Proud Boys gets into the house? I mean, what are your kind of thoughts on that kind of your eyebrows have raised a couple inches <laughs> well you know knock on wood that that doesn't happen um if they do get in i don't think that they'll last very long i like i said it's a pendulum and i also do not see Hawaii shifting farther to the right. I noticed all these um, Trump caravans going on across Hawaii. Yes, very, very visible. They're very visible, but in a way I don't see, I see this not as a threat, but as a wake up call to us as progressives, as Democrats to do better. Because if we don't deliver, these caravine, caravans are going to get longer. More people are going to join these. And even though they are visible, I tell everyone that, you know, they don't represent the population. It's the same people sign waving every single day. It's the same people driving the same cars. And I don't think their numbers ever increased to over 800 people. I don't think they've ever increased over 800 people. And if you think about it, we have a population of, 
I think one point some four million or one point five million. Correct me on that, please. I wouldn't know. I thought it was one point seven, but I could totally be wrong. I don't know either. <laughs> but but I you know. You know, you're talking about that Trump caravan and the visibility of them. Uh, I, I, it makes me think about, you know, when we talk about race, you know, the argument of blackness as kind of the definitive aspect of whiteness, right? It, if you didn't have blackness, you wouldn't be able to see that white power. And I think that even in light of this conversation about the um, presence of Proud Boys, it's like, their presence helps us reflect on what's out there and what we're trying to protect or what that means to us and what questioning that, you know, we need to have kind of margins that kind of, I guess, make us reflect on where we sit in this. I don't know so, if I agree or not. I actually want to challenge um, the notion that the Proud Boys will die out. And, and <clears throat> to do that, um, so I just want to talk a little bit about how these groups sort of evolve, but rather than looking at the evolution toward the future, I want to circle back um, and talk about the past and, and specifically um, Adrian's race for the primary. So in the primary, he ran against uh, another Democrat, Tom Brower, and Tom Brower is racism in another name. Um, I say that because he what made national headlines, uh, Hawaii state rep made national headlines for taking a sledgehammer to homeless communities, to homeless encampments. And it's horrifying that he did that, all while wearing, I think, was it an Armani hat or something like that? And so when we think about people who are homeless on the surface, that might seem like a class issue, right? But then we think about, well, who disproportionately experiences housing instability and houselessness? And we know that it's Pacific Islanders and um, white native Hawaiians and, um, and, uh, and other marginalized groups in Hawaii, Micronesians, um, Filipinos. So um, we had a racist person in that seat and we need to remember that. You know, you don't have to be a proud boy running for public office in order to be problematic. Well, to wrap up this heavy conversation about, you know, beliefs and identities and, and, and what it means to be on the other side of things, what are some, um, I guess, some thoughts that you both want people lingering with uh, now that the election campaign's coming scarily close and uh again there's more visibility of of the uh, of different threats to diversity um even though like you said adrian in hawaii it doesn't seem as big of an issue but it's there you know racism is alive and well and kicking and and how do we address that so any final comments i think how we address that is to put pressure and to be vocal uh, we have to let people know and be visible and be heard knowing that this is not okay. And that starts with, you know, us as progressives, um, us as people in Hawaii. And ultimately that extends to the Republican party of Hawaii. When we did that interview that I talked about earlier in this segment, you know, we, I mentioned that I hope that the Republican party would do the right thing and condemn um, what the other candidate has done, but instead they've decided to double down. 
but I am hopeful that like the Republican Party, like um, the symbol of this country, the Republican Party of Hawaii is like a pendulum that when it swings too far to the right, it will ultimately come back to a more um, stable, more normal um, kind of thinking, ideology. And I think this is the tipping point where for the Hawaii Republican Party. We saw, we kind of saw this happen when they started shifting to the right in 2016, when they, uh, 2017, when they ousted Rep. Beth Fukumoto for speaking her mind at a women's march. Um, Beth Fukumoto was the minority leader for the Republican Party as a, a member of the House of Representatives, but she could not support Donald Trump. And she spoke out at the women's rally, women's march, and she was kicked out of her leadership position and stripped of her leadership positions and ultimately left the party to become an independent and then become a Democrat. But at the time, there was also some decency in the Republican Party because there was also a candidate named Angela Kaihui who ran. Um, she ran on a platform that she didn't have cancer like Congressman Mark Takai. Mm -hmm. And that, what, that was what made her qualified. And, you know, I'm looking at your screens right now. You guys are horrified that a candidate <laughs> would say this. But at the time... Um, Angela Kaihui's comments were denounced almost immediately by the Republican Party. Um, Fritz Rostring, I had a lot of respect for him because he did that. He was the chair of the Republican Party at the time. But we're at a point now, you know, does the comments that and the antics and the the things that they've that my opponent that the other candidate in this race have done, does that equate to what Miss Kai Hui did in 2016. And I'm my opinion, it's almost equal. They're both horrific things and they should be denounced. But this time the Republican party decided to double down and stand by their candidate. And that's why I think this is the tipping point for them. Right, it's very revealing. Yeah, thank you for sharing. Hannah, do you have any other comments? So thank you to you, bo <clears throat> to you both for your insight. Um, I'll end by saying, so I'm like a loud howly, like my partner's <laughs> local and you know, she's always like, why are you always slamming doors? I'm like, I didn't know I was slamming the door. Why are you so loud on the floor? Can't you like, you know, walk across the floor more quiet because her mom lives downstairs. Um, and I've always been that way. I've always come across as a little harsh. Um, you know, I've hurt people's feelings uh, unbeknownst to me because I'm a little too harsh. I'm a little self-righteous. And, um, you know, when I came here, I thought I was woke and I thought I understood race. And I was like, whoa, I do not understand race after living here. Um, and so it's been very humbling to be like, hey, like I teach women's studies, I'm a, getting my PhD and I don't know shit about race, you know, like, please, can I just like listen and shut up for a minute because I'm so loud all the time. And that was hard for me. And <clears throat> it's so hard for me not to try and be softer and to try and listen to people and to try to talk to other white people to be like, hey, like, you know, what you said hurt me. It's, it's, I find it a problem. Like, can we talk about race, you know? Um, and, and sometimes I'll have this great conversation where I'm like, this person understood, like I got through to them. And then, you know, a week later, I'm like, oh, I heard through a friend that they didn't actually get it, right? 
And so like, I just keep trying all these different methods and I keep trying because it's so important. And so I just want other white people to like, if you aren't already, just keep trying with me, like keep having those conversations. Um, and if I come across as too harsh to you, you know, I, I am apologizing in advance and I'll admit that I'm wrong and that I, I did, I wasn't as thoughtful as I could have been. So, you know, that's, that's what I want to leave people with is like, you know, let's stop making people of color do that unpaid labor of having to teach us about race. Like join me in observing what race means here and on the mainland and national, you know, internationally. And, and then let's have conversations amongst ourselves uh, primarily so that we don't have to make, you know, you Crystal or Adrian as Asian Americans do that work for us. Um, and so that's what I would like to leave this conversation with. Okay, well, thank you for that. And thank you both of you for sharing so much. I mean, and thank you for encouraging uncomfortable conversations because that's the only way we're going to progress, right? So um, good luck to both of you in your immediate um, competitions and projects and accomplishments. I think now is the time to voice ourselves and let's hope that pendulum does come down to something that's well and balanced. Well-being is something so underappreciated now, right? So uh, again, thank you so much. Take care of yourselves and everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Um, this was Hannah and Adrian Tam and uh, appreciate all your voices. And we don't reflect anything on the on behalf of the radio. <laughs> Not taking any slack for that, but uh, appreciate your opinions and your voices. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for thinking of us. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much for um, letting us on. Thank you.